Let me ask, let me start out this morning. How many of you guys play video games? Any of you guys play video games? Listen, I know some of you are afraid to raise your hand. 70% of Americans play games on their phone. That counts. So when you're sitting in the bathroom playing Angry Birds or whatever you do, we play video games. Listen, there was a guy in Russia. I read this this week. Fascinating. A guy in Russia, he sued the maker of the video game Fallout. Okay? He sued because of the damage it caused in his personal life. See, this guy started playing this video game. Started playing this video game. And pretty soon, he kind of forgot to go to work. He forgot to spend time with his friends. He forgot to spend time with his wife. So he was holding the video game maker for the res- uh, video game maker responsible for the damage it caused to his loss of his job and to the loss of his marriage. Now that's a funny story. And we hear that and we think, oh, I know who that is. That's it. That, that's, the, that's, the, that's those millennials, right? That's those generation. That's not my generation. That's the other generation. They, they're the ones that do that. That's not my generation. But let me ask you this. How many of you know somebody? How many of you know somebody who they love the Lord? They were walking with God and you're like, wow. And then all of a sudden it seemed like sin took hold in their life. And that person Man, even though they were walking with God at one point, they made a shipwreck of their life and of their faith. And you're like, what happened? I have been the privilege of being in full-time ministry for 16 years. And I can think about friends that I've done ministry with, guys that I loved, guys that love the word of God, guys that, that, that we have, have done ministry together, but guys that didn't necessarily have a disciplined life. And I can think of several of these friends who have allowed other things to take root and in their heart and in their life, and they made a shipwreck of their life and of their faith. These guys have brought incredible damage to their own families, to uh, the church of God. They've brought shame uh, on the gospel and on the cause of Christ because they were undisciplined. They allowed other things to take root in their lives. Now the danger is, obviously we're at church here on Sunday morning. The danger is we hear about people like that. We're like, not me. There's no way I would do something like that. I'm better than those other people. I'm not going to allow anything else to take root in my heart. I'll remain faithful to Jesus. We say things like, well, I've been baptized in the church, right? I, I I was dedicated in the church. I was practically born underneath a pew. There's no way I would do that. We say things, well, I've gone on mission trips. I've seen miracles. I've been to Bible college. There's no way I'm going to make a shipwreck of my faith and walk away from God. The reality is, none of us, none of us can be that confident. In fact, I remember what the Apostle Paul said last week. The Apostle Paul, a guy who wrote Bible. Again, he's probably on a different level than most of us are. He wrote Bible, and he said last week, he said, I have to discipline my body lest I be found disqualified. Which kind of carries this idea that you and I, we can't, we can't rest on like our faith in the past. We can't rest on, on what's happened behind us. We have to, in the moment, continue to remain faithful to God in order that we live lives that would honor Him. See, we've been looking through the book of 1 Corinthians for the past couple of weeks. I guess it's now a couple of months. And uh, the book of 1 Corinthians is actually a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to, wrote to a church, probably not much unlike ours. 
a church in the city of Corinth. And Paul is writing and, and encouraging the Christians, you need to build your life around the gospel. That is what is most important. You need to, to do this. And then he said, as you do that, there are these practical implications. When you are going to live a life that is faithful to him, there's practical implications on marriage and, and sex and lawsuits and how the church operates. In fact, the past two weeks, we've been dealing with this idea of the freedoms that we have as Christians, about our rights. Because the Corinthians, they said, this is our right. We have the right to eat whatever meat we want, no matter if that meat's been offered to, sacrifice, to, offer to, to idols or anything else. And Paul says, you're right. You can eat whatever meat you're right, whatever meat you want. But then Paul said this, instead of just leaving it that, he said, but the goal in life is not our rights. Our goal in life is not freedom to do whatever we want to do. Our goal is something greater. We pointed to Matthew chapter 22, where some Pharisees asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus said simply, what's most important for us is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love people as ourselves. That we are to be people of love. And when we love people like that, then it leads us to prioritize relationships over our desire to be right, over our privileges. So last week, we saw the example. The apostle Paul said, let me show you what it looks like to have rights. And Paul said, these are my rights. As a pastor, I have these rights. But Paul set aside those rights in order to pursue something greater, the kingdom of God, so that other people would come and to acknowledge and experience the kingdom of God. Today, though, the Apostle Paul's taking that a step further. Going to bring up this issue of idolatry. Now, when we hear about an idol, we think, of, we think of maybe like a golden calf. Maybe an idol, you think of like a little Buddha statue that you rub his belly for good luck when you're going off to work or whatever you're going to do. But idols are much bigger than that. Idols are, are, are much bigger than that. Because what happens is, is Scripture says as, as, as human beings, we are created for worship. Every one of us, we are created for worship and we are always worshiping something. Which means that under every impulse, under every decision that we make, under every motivation, there is something within inside of us that is causing us to pursue that decision, to pursue that thing. There's something that we are, are worshiping that we are giving into, that we are pursuing, that we think will bring us happiness or, or meaning or, or will make our identity complete. In fact, Paul said in Romans chapter 1, he said, either you worship God or you worship a created thing. In fact, here's, here's just a simple definition of an idol. An idol is something other than God that we turn to for our peace or joy or satisfaction or completion could be any number of things. It could be money or wealth. If we think money and wealth is going to make us happy, then that becomes an idol that we worship. If we think security, we just need to be secure, that becomes an idol that we worship. If we begin to think that we have uh, this need for status or honor in order to prove how good we are, that becomes an idol that we worship. Ultimately, you can even worship good things. There are good things in our lives, health and family. And what can happen is we take those things and make them an ultimate thing. And those become idols as well. 
Paul's bringing up this idea of idolatry because he's about to talk about the greatest idol of all. You know the greatest idol that we all struggle with? The idol of self. The idol of self. We worship ourselves. We live our lives in order to make ourselves happy and feel good about us. We worship ourselves where in our minds we start thinking about, well, maybe I'm not great, but I'm better than that person. We begin to think about the people that we are better than. Where we become primarily focused about ourselves and our rights and what we're entitled to. You see it in how oftentimes what we do is we expect other people to sacrifice for us. Which is not the gospel. The gospel says we sacrifice for others. But when we idolize ourselves, when we worship ourselves, we expect other people to give in, to bend over backwards, and to sacrifice for ourselves. So Paul is going to have this conversation about the most dangerous idol, the idol of ourself. And he's going to tell us as he kind of concludes this section of his letter that we are to glorify God, that we glorify God most when we wholeheartedly surrender ourselves to loving God and to loving people as ourselves. So here's where we're going to start in verse 1. He's going to point to the Old Testament. And here's what he says, verse 1, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, which means he's writing to Christians. He's writing to us. He's not writing to the world and people who don't know God. He's writing to, to, to Christians. He says, I don't want you to be unaware that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. Verse 2, in fact, they were baptized into Moses, into the cloud and into the sea. It says he, they ate from the same spiritual food. And verse 4, they drank from the same spiritual drink. The drink for, they drank from the rock, which was Christ. See, what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to give us a comparison. He's trying to compare the Old Testament people of God, those are the Israelites, with the New Testament people of God. That's the Christians. That's the church. He's trying to compare these two. And he uses some language that the Corinthians would have understand, understood. Because in the modern church, in the New Testament church, we understand that baptism, what does baptism do? It identifies us with Jesus. It is a public statement that we are following after Christ. When we partake of the Lord's table, when we have communion, we have the bread and the juice, that represents what Christ has done for us. That represents Christ providing us salvation. And so what Paul is doing is he says, listen, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites, they were baptized into Moses under the cloud and the sea, which means he's trying to identify the people of God with Moses and with God himself. And then he says they ate that same spiritual food and they drank that same spiritual drink, which again refers to God miraculously providing manna and water out of the rock to sustain them spiritually and spirit, uh, physically, representing their deliverance. He's trying to help us understand there's a correlation between the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites, and us in the New Testament, in the church. Here's what he says in verse 5, speaking about those in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, despite all that they had seen, with most of them, God was not pleased, and he overthrew them in the wilderness. See, when we understand the Old Testament, these guys saw some incredible things. Remember, Moses goes into uh, Egypt, and, and uh, Israel is all captive, and Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, no way, and Charlton Heston goes and does all these things. It's great. It's a great movie. Uh, uh, but 
Then God sends all the plagues uh, and the final plague of, of the, the Passover. And so finally, Pharaoh relents and says, okay, you people can go. And so the Israelites, they leave. And as they're leaving out of Egypt, they go to the Red Sea. And then the Egyptians start chasing them. They're going to try and take them back. And so God parts the Red Sea, lets them go over dry land. And then God causes the water to come over the Egyptians. It's a great story. It's a miracle. Then they're wandering in the wilderness. They're trying to get to the promised land. And God provides them this miraculous food and water. And so these people, they've seen these miracles. They've seen God do tremendous things. Yet, God was not pleased with them. God disciplined them. And I read that, and it makes me wonder, well, if they saw, all the, if they saw God do all these amazing things, why was God having to discipline them? Why was God not pleased with them? And Paul answers that. He says in verse 7, he says, I don't want you to be idolaters as some of them were, as some of those in the Old Testament. As it is written, this is in Exodus chapter 32, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. See, that verse 7 is pointing back to Exodus 32. Exodus 32, the people of God, they're getting ready to worship God on the mountain. Moses has gone up. Moses is having a conversation with God. He's, they're getting ready to, to head into a worship service. And what do the people do? Remember the story? They say, they say hey, Aaron, we want you to make a golden calf. We want to we wanna be able to actually see the God that we're worshiping. So we want you to, to make us a golden calf. And while Moses is up talking to God, preparing for the worship service, the people are down worshiping a golden calf, worshiping an idol. They sat down to eat and drink and play and have a party. They were mixing what was common, what was normal of their day with, with actual worship of God. They were idolaters. Verse 8, Paul, again talking to the New Testament church, says you must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of those from the Old Testament where 23,000 fell in a single day. In fact, you could read this story. This is another story out of the Old Testament. Uh, you can write down on your notes, Numbers chapter 25. You can read this story later today. Numbers 25, that due to sexual desires and marriage between non-believers, the people of God made God angry, and his anger burned against them, and 23,000 died because of that sexual immorality. Verse 9, again, Paul says, you must not put Christ to the test, as some of those in the Old Testament did, and they were destroyed by serpents. That story is in Numbers chapter 21. They disobeyed God. God brought punishment. Verse 10, he says, you must not grumble. You must not complain, as some of those did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's the story out of Numbers chapter 14. You can read those stories later. Again, I want you to get the picture that Paul is saying you've got the people of God who have, all these, who have experienced all these wonderful miracles. God has done so much for them. All these great things. Yet in response, they were not wholeheartedly dedicated to God. And so they had a little bit of worship with God, mixed in with some idol worship, mixed in with some sexual morality, mixed in with some enjoyment that they're that taking precedence over the full worship of God. And as a result, because they were not fully dedicated to him, wholeheartedly in worship of God. God caused them to suffer discipline. They suffer the discipline of God. See, growth and maturity comes as we anchor 
uh, our life onto the foundation. We've got to anchor our life onto the foundation of God. And so, uh, and so, this is what idol worship looks like. Not necessarily, it's not necessarily an object. It's not things that we think will satisfy us or complete us or give us peace. Things that we think we can live, things that we can't live without. Things that we think will satisfy us. That is what idol worship is. In fact, oftentimes, we don't even know what's happening. We don't even know what's happening. Nobody ever says, nobody ever says, well, I don't want to worship Jesus. I want to worship, uh, you know, something else. I want to worship money or, or, or sex or power or fame. We don't ever say that. What we do is we say, well, I want Jesus and I want this. I want, I want some of Jesus and I want some of this. And we become dual-hearted. Our hearts become divided. Leaves us to living a double life. In fact, do you know what turns the world off from Christianity more than anything else? It's our hypocrisy. It's our hypocrisy. When we claim one thing, we claim we love Jesus. He's all we need in life. But then we actually live our lives as if we need these other things that are going to satisfy us. That turns the world off. And this is what the Old Testament people of God had become. Dual-hearted. And why does Paul mention these guys? Why does Paul mention these things? Verse 6. He says, these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire the evil that they did. Verse 11, these things happened as an example to us. They were written in the Old Testament for our instruction. See, what Paul is saying is the Old Testament, the Old Testament, you know, we got all the stories in the Old Testament, all the rules and all the things. It was actually written as a book for us to learn from. It's a history book so we can learn from. Because what Paul is saying is in the Old Testament Christians and the New Testament, the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament Christians, man, our hearts are kind of the same. We're not any better than they were. See, here we are in the New Testament, like the Old Testament Christians, like we've experienced the grace of God in our lives, right? We've experienced some, some amazing things. We've experienced his, his sacrifice on the cross for us. We've experienced salvation. Many of us have had God who's done some amazing things in our lives. Yet, despite how God has done all this for us, we are still prone to pursue idols. Every one of us. This is where we have one foot trying to follow God, one foot trying to, to be dedicated to God, but we've got this other side of us that's pursuing something else as if that is what is going to give us uh, freedom and peace. So we've got one foot pursuing God and the other foot we're pursuing money and wealth and prosperity because that's where security is found, right? This is where we go to church. We go to church thinking, man, man, God is enough for me. But then in reality, we're looking for a guy and a girl thinking we're not going to be satisfied unless I have that spouse, unless I have that, 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 that other person with me. This is where we go to church and we serve in the church and we say God is enough for me while we have to turn to pornography or addiction or alcohol or something else to get us through the day because in reality, Christ isn't enough for us. See, the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God, man, it's the same song, different chorus, but it's the same song. And so Paul saying, listen, the Old Testament is a warning to us that if we, if we will lack discipline, 
if we lack self-control. Paul says, look, there was an entire generation that, that forfeited, that forfeited their inheritance, that forfeited the blessing of God. They suffered God's discipline. And Paul is writing to these New Testament Christians and saying, is that what you want? Is that what you want for your life? Paul continues in verse 12 and says, Let anyone who thinks he can stand take heed unless he fall. This is where Paul is saying, Hey, hey, if you think you're strong enough to stand on your own, if you think you're strong enough to, 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 to not worship idols, listen, I want you to take heed. Because man, like humanity, we're weak. And God is strong. And Paul is saying, I care. I love about you. I, I love you. So I want you to listen. I want you to take caution because I don't want you to fall into that idolatry. Verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You see, one of, Satan one of Satan's tactics is to make us feel like we're all alone. One of the things Satan wants us to do is make us, well, you're the only one that struggles with this. You're all alone on your own. Paul says, whatever struggle you have, it's not uncommon to man. There's others that struggle with it. You're not alone. It says in verse 13, God is faithful. That's one of those things you need to underline or circle or highlight or put blinking lights in your Bible. Memorize that. God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with a temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may endure. What Paul just said, and we need to understand this, is when we are faced with sin, when we are faced with sin, Paul is saying that we're going to be able to resist it. We're going to be able to resist it. We will not be overpowered. That God has given us the strength and it provided a means of escape to any temptation that comes in front of us. Which means, and we need to hear this very clearly, if we sin, it's because we choose to sin. We don't stumble into sin. If we sin, it is a choice that we make. And because of that, Paul says this in verse 14, therefore, my beloved, he cares about these people. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. He's saying it's not worth it. It's not worth it. You don't want to face the discipline of God. You don't want to be disqualified. You don't want, you don't want to compromise your life and your testimony. So flee idolatry. Don't play with it. He actually argues even further against having this dual hearted devotion. He says in verse 16, he says, the cup of blessing, is that not a participation in the blood of Christ? Then he said, the bread that we break, is that not a participation in the body of Christ? If there's one bread, then we are one body. See, what Paul's talking about, he's talking about communion. When we partake of communion, now communion, we do you typically about once a month here at Restoration Church. And what Paul is saying is the, the, the bread and the juice, it represents the body and the blood that Christ offered on the cross for us. And so when you partake of communion, what Paul said is you are uniting yourselves with him. When we partake of communion, we are uniting ourselves with Christ as well as uniting ourselves with one another, with the body of Christ. That is what communion does. It unites us to him and to one another. And Paul is saying in the same way, what do you think happens when you worship idols? Corinthians, when they go to the temple and they have this feast where they have this meat that they're going to offer to an idol, they're going to sacrifice it to a false god, Paul says, 
It's the same thing. You're uniting yourself to that false god. You are uniting yourself to the people that are worshiping that false god. You've become one with them. Now, Paul recognizes there's only one god. There's not multiple gods. And so actually what he says is you are uniting yourself with a demon. That is what you are doing. And a demon's job is to take your eyes off of Jesus, off of God. And so when we partake in idol worship, we are worshiping demons. See, you and I, we're not going to probably have to deal with meat offered to idols. That's not something we deal with in our culture. But we have idols that we face nonetheless, right? We have this desire for wealth or power or fame or whatever it happens to be. And that's what Satan wants us to do. Satan wants us to have these idols. He, he will do every, anything in his power. He will do anything in his power to disrupt our total devotion to God. In fact, there's a book called The Screwtape Letters written by C.S. Lewis. It's a, it's a great book. It's a fiction book. But I love it because it's about, it's about a young demon trying to learn how to distract Christians away from worshiping God. And it's so just real. Because it, their goal, Satan's goal, is to get our eyes off of Jesus onto lesser idols, to lesser things, to take our eyes off of Jesus and to cause us to lose our exclusive devotion to God. In fact, Paul, for Paul, that's what this text is all about. That's what this whole idea is all about. It's all about our loyalty and our allegiance to God. Paul is asking these Corinthians and he's asking us, will you or will you not be exclusively devoted to God? Will you wholeheartedly worship him or not? He reiterates that truth in verse 23. Actually, he reiterates the truth that the Corinthians have been saying. The Corinthians have had this idea, all things are lawful. All things are lawful. I can do whatever I want. And Paul says, you're right. All things are lawful. But, he says, but not all things are helpful. Not all things build up. Not all things build up others. Not all things build up the church of God. And so that's where Paul says, yes, all things are lawful, but verse 24, no one should seek his own good, but should seek the good of others. Paul says, yes, yes, you have freedom. Yes, absolutely, you've got, you've got freedom and rights and liberty, but those things are not the goal. In fact, you might, if you're one of those people that write in your Bible, you might write in the margin of your Bible next to verse 24, Matthew chapter 22, 34 through 40. Again, you've got freedom. Paul says you've got freedom, but freedom isn't the goal. The goal is that we as a people of God would love God and love others as ourselves. That is our goal. Not to claim our rights, not to say we've got freedom, but that we would fight against that greatest idol of pursuing ourselves, that we would love God and love other people. That's the goal. And so Paul takes this idea and he, and he applies it to a very specific situation in Corinth in verses 25 through 30. I'm not even going to read these verses. But he's talking about meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And what he's saying is, yes, you've got freedom. You've got freedom. You can eat whatever meat, but do not idolize freedom and self. Because if a meat has been offered to an idol, and if that would cause your weaker brother or sister to struggle, man, then, the that, then for that day you are a vegetarian. If your freedom is going to cause someone else to struggle, then you should resist that freedom. 
So it's not to cause that brother or sister to struggle so that you don't become a hypocrite to the people around you. He concludes this passage in verse 31. He says, So whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Christians or to the non-Christians or the church. You should be just as I am, where I try to please everyone in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage, but seeking that many would be saved. Be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. See, what Paul is saying is God's glory, God's glory is revealed in how we love him and how we love one another. That is how God's glory is going to be revealed to the world. And so Paul says, listen, this is what a mature Christian does. A mature Christian, when they're making decisions, their first thought is to the glory and the centrality of God. Their first thought is not about their rights, not about their freedom. I have the freedom to do whatever I want to do. No, their first thought is to, how can I put God first in this situation? How can I honor God? As they're making a decision, a mature Christian says, will this draw me closer to Christ? Or will this draw me further away from him? And then the second thought for that mature Christian is first, does this honor God? The second question is, will this be a stumbling block to another Christian? Will this build up the church? Will this build up my brothers and sisters in Christ? Those are the two questions mature Christians should ask themselves. And it just makes me think, man, oftentimes I'm so quick to claim my rights. I'm so quick to say, well, I have the freedom to do this instead of considering, listen, does this actually grow me closer to Christ? Will this cause someone else to struggle? Paul would say this. Paul would say, this is what I want you to hear today. We glorify God when we wholeheartedly love God and love others as ourselves. That is where the glory of God is found. He said this. He said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And how do we do that? We love God and love others as ourselves. That's how we glorify God. Paul says you can look at the example of the Old Testament uh, people of God. They failed to be wholeheartedly devoted to that. And they suffer discipline. They look like hypocrites. And Paul says, listen, because I love the church, I don't want you to look like that. I want you to be wholeheartedly devoted to him and how you love God and how you love others. As we look at this idea of application, there's a Russian saying that I thought was appropriate to mention today. It says, a wise man learns from someone else's mistakes. A smart man learns from his own mistakes. And a dumb man never learns. We have an opportunity today to learn from the Old Testament, to learn from those people of God. That as we look at our life, as we look at our faith, as we look at our world, if we want to make an impact for the kingdom of God, if we want to experience his blessings in our life, we've got to refuse the affections that are divided between God and idols. We've got to make a decision to be wholeheartedly devoted to God. So we're going to take a minute today and I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you this. I'm going to ask you, what are the idols? What are the idols that you struggle with in your life? 
What are the idols that you struggle with in your life? I'm going to ask you to do three things with that today. First thing, I'm going to ask you to actually name your idols. To name them. To identify what it is and to give it a name. See, we don't, we don't do that enough. We don't do that enough. Oftentimes, we have these things where we're like, well, I, I kind of struggle with this or I kind of, no. I, but when we actually put a name on it, it makes it real. What is the idol you struggle with? Is it control? The need for control? Is it the need for security? To feel safe? Is it the need for money? Is it an addiction? Is it your lust? Is it popularity? Is it entertainment? See, too often we are so vague about, oh, I, I just have some struggles. But there is a power when we can identify it and say, this is what my idol is. What is your idol? What are the idol, idols that you typically struggle with? Name it. Name it. What is it for you? In fact, I want to challenge you. You want to know what your idol is? Look at your calendar. What do you spend most of your time on? That'll help you understand, hey, maybe there's an idol somewhere within this calendar. Look at your checkbook. Nobody has a checkbook anymore. Look at your bank statement. Your bank statement will tell you, what do you spend your money on? Or, or, or probably even better, what do you spend your discretionary money on? Your extra money. That will reveal to you, maybe there's an idol that's revealed to you by how you spend your money. What do you find yourself talking the most about? Gather with friends and see somebody. What are you spending most of your time talking about? These things can reveal the idols in our lives. What is it for you? Name it. Put a name on it. Number two, after you name it, take a minute and just confess that to the Lord. Repent of that idol. See, to repent simply means to acknowledge that you are wrong and to turn the other way. Which means all we have to do to, to confess this and repent before God is to say, all right, God, I acknowledge this is an idol I struggle with. But God, today I'm going to decide not to have a divided heart. God, today I'm going to decide no longer to be a hypocrite. I'm not going to allow myself to have these dual affections. God, today I believe that Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Repent of that idol. Paul's warning is, hey, listen, I know you think you can stand. I know you think you can fight against the idol on yourself, but take heed. Satan is a strong enemy. He wants us to think we can stand on our own. He wants us to think you can handle on your own. So the first thing you do is you name your idol. The second thing you do is you confess it and repent of it. Number three, here's the third step. Is don't just confess it. Talk to someone about it. Talk to someone about your idols. In fact, James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Confess your sins and pray for one another that you may be healed. See, there is a tremendous power in us asking and sharing other, with other people what our struggle is. When we confess our sins, we invite someone else to hold us accountable, to encourage us, to support us. Why? Not to judge us, but to help us stay faithful. We all need it. We all need it. So I'm asking you to do this. I'm asking you to, to identify your idol, to, to pray to God and confess it and repent of it and to talk to someone else about it. Hey, here's what I struggle with. Here's the idol that I find myself most often pursuing. Because I'm going to invite you to do that today. I'm going to invite you, find me, find Jake. Say, man, Pastor Kevin, here's my idol. Here's what I struggle with. Find a life group leader. 
Find, find your spouse. Find your parent. Find a mature Christian that you look up to. And just be honest and say, man, this is where I'm at. Here's the idol that I struggle with. Listen, don't fight alone. That's what Satan wants. He wants us to fight alone. You got this. You can handle it on your own. God says that's a lie. There is power and healing we, when we share our struggles with one another. There's accountability and hope and encouragement. Listen, I love y'all. I love the church. And I'm asking us to decide today not to compartmentalize Christ. I'm asking you not to believe that Christ only belongs in church, but actually Christ lives within us, that we are his temple. And everything we do is important, as well as how we do it. So the challenge today is that we would live wholeheartedly to the glory of God and how we love God and how we love others. Let's pray.